0: Well, Last weekend, Hurricane Matthew barreled through uh, the Caribbean and skirted the coast of the United States. In Haiti, uh, some entire towns were completely wiped away. Uh, it's been reported that over a 1,000 people in Haiti have died. And that number is expected to rise even more because of the storm's impact on the water and the sanita- sanitation infrastructure. In North Carolina, it's reported that Even in North Carolina, 26 people have died as a result of floods. And uh, this should break our hearts because it reminds us of the brokenness of the world. We were reminded of it weekly, almost daily, that this world is broken in sin and in tragedies and in suffering and in death. It reminds us of the terrible trials many face around the world in in our own communities, in our own families. It reminds us also, though, of how blessed we are when we are spared from a tragedy like this and yet how often, how ungrateful we are for God's provision and protection over us. But in the midst of these trials, we're we're reminded of something else. We're reminded... uh, often especially in these trials, we're reminded of the glory of God's church. The glory of God's church. It never takes long after tragedies like this to see the Christian church worldwide gather around those who are in suffering and in the midst of tragedy and and sacrifice and give and love and care for those who are affected. And in particular, we are blessed in that we are home to the North Carolina Baptist men and women and their disaster relief teams. They're always ready to go and to serve in situations like this, in those places that have been damaged the most. And so they are, they are already active in North Carolina and in other places to serve those places that have been uh, affected. Hearts and Hands for Haiti, uh, an organization we support financially with our, and with our prayers is continuing to work for children and families in need, and they have referred us to a kind of partner organization of theirs, Hope for Haiti, if anyone wants to give in particular to hurricane relief efforts there. Uh, and so you can look, up, look it up on the Hearts and Hands for Haiti website uh, or Facebook page uh, if you would like to give in that way. But my point is, it's in times like these in particular that often the church shines, that the glory of the church is, is most evident. We have been changed by the grace of Christ who has rescued us, who has relieved our suffering, who has saved us from sin and death, and therefore we are moved in joy to serve and to love others and to sacrifice for our neighbors in the midst of their need. And that is a glorious thing. But all too often... Outside of those times, even outside of those times, we fail to remember that in gatherings like this, week in and week out, the church of Jesus Christ is glorious. In ordinary times, the church of God is glorious. The church, I mean, it might be hard for you to see. You look up at me, you look at the people you're sitting next to, and you say, I'm not seeing the glory there. Or you look at your family members who are here with you and you know their particular sins, their particular faults. And it's hard for us to see the glory of the church. But the case there, the reason for that is we're, we're looking merely with natural eyes and not with spiritual eyes. The church is often an easy target for criticism. What do you hear? They're all about money. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. The church is just about all the rituals and about the show. There's nothing real there. And while those sorts of abuses should be called out, often people are just failing to see with spiritual eyes. They're failing to see what truly is the church. Because this is not how Paul talks about the church. It's not a spiritual view of the church. It's not a biblical view of the church. Rather, we see a biblical view of the church, a spiritual view, view of the church in these chapters here in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 2, and 3, and particularly here in the verses we are considering this morning, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. So turn there in your Bibles and follow along as I read and pray that we would see uh, spiritually what the church is, what this gathering is even today. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred or holy, and you together are that temple. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our time together as we consider your word, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see the reality of what your church is so that we would treasure it, that we would, that we would value it, that we would prize this gathering and these people uh, because you dwell in our midst. Give us a great vision for what the church is, for who we are together, that we might protect and promote its unity and purity, that we might not despise it, despite what those around us say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The church... The people of God together is the holy temple of God with Christ as its foundation. So by the use of this image, Paul wants to remind the Corinthians of this staggering truth, this staggering, amazing truth. God dwells with his people by his Spirit. And this is why sins against the unity of the church are so reprehensible. By their jealousy and strife, the Corinthians are destroying the holy temple of God. Instead, they ought to view the church as it truly is and protect its holiness and purity. So to combat this divisiveness of the Corinthians, Paul has been reminding the Corinthians who they are. From the very beginning of this letter, he has been reminding them. Remember chapter 1, verse 2. They are the church of God in Corinth. They are those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. And here in chapter 3, they are God's field and God's building with Christ as their foundation. And now he reminds them who they are, but from a different angle, with a different image. It turns out that the building of verses 9 through 15 is more than a simple common structure. It is a spiritual building. It is a, a temple. It is the temple holy temple of God. So Paul wants the Corinthians to understand the glory of the church, the glory of who they are together, and the seriousness of sin against the church. He wants them to have more than just a merely natural view of the church. He wants them to know what it is spiritually. For then they would take much greater care in building it up much greater care not to tear it down. They would take more seriously their commitment to one another and their commitment to the church. And they would take more seriously sins which might harm the integrity of this structure. So we'll consider these two things this morning. The glory of the church. I want us to, to have a spiritual view of the church. We'll consider the glory of the church and we'll consider the seriousness of sin against the church. First, I want us to see the glory of God's church. Now, if we just see the church with merely natural eyes, then it does look ordinary. We're all just ordinary people from different walks of life. If you would imagine us as some sort of structure or building, it might not look all that impressive. And consider who Paul is talking to, the Corinthians, well known to us as having all sorts of problems and pride and sin. They're known to us as the messed up church. If we imagine them to be a building, we might imagine a building with mildew and on the walls and rotting wood. They thought they were really something, but really Paul shows them how they've been building with Materials which are not going to last with wood, hay, and straw. But as bad as they are, as messed up as they are, Paul surprises us with this image in verses 16 and 17. Don't you know this? Don't you know that you all are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? You should know this, Paul says. Don't you recognize what you are? So notice two things going on here. First, this image, you are God's temple And second, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. We're not exactly sure. Uh, Paul doesn't specify what temple Paul has in mind. But the word here he uses refers to the holiest parts of the temple. So you might remember Solomon's temple. Built with gold and silver and precious stones. There were the outer courts, the holy place, and then the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the Ten Commandments. We read in 1 Kings 8 that when the priests withdrew from the holy place after bringing in the Ark, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. The temple, especially the holy places, represented the very presence of the holy God. It didn't just represent His presence, though. God was present among His people. And the astounding thing about this is that humans have forfeited that right from the very beginning. Adam and Eve walked with God in perfect harmony, but then they sinned, and what happened? They were cast out of the garden. They were cast cast out from the presence of God. We know that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You and I forfeited our right to be with God when we sinned, to be with God in any kind of peaceful relationship. You've heard by now, more than likely, the, the inappropriate, the vulgar, the disgusting remarks made by Donald Trump 11 years ago. And it got me thinking, you know it's not very fun to hang around people who talk like that. I've heard from some of you where you've been with uh, friends and they sp- start taking the, the lord's name in vain, and how that just harms it just harms you, it just re- revulses you. it, it causes you to, to react inwardly. And' it's not that, it's not that you're, you're so fragile, you can't take it, right It's that there's something about speaking against the holiness of God. is something about speaking blasphemy about the God of the universe that causes you to have pain. It causes you maybe to have a sort of righteous indignation. It's right and good to be revulsed, to be repelled against things like that. It should repulse us. But friends, consider this for yourself. What if the words you used in secret were recorded? What if your thoughts were available in book form for anyone to read? Here's some nervous giggles there. huh? What if there was a book which contained all of your thoughts and deeds from the moment you were born until the day you died? And then consider this, the revulsion you have toward the sins and words of others must be something like the revulsion God has for our sins and our thoughts and our words. We don't like to be in the presence of others who are vulgar, and God hates sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And this truth is very frightening because we have forfeited the presence of God. The truth is that each and every one of us were separated from God because of sin. God cannot allow for sinners to be in his presence for he is holy. That's why the priests of Israel who entered into the tabernacle had to go through the rituals of washings to offer sacrifices for sin before entering. And if they didn't do everything according to God's instructions, there was a very real chance they would die. That's why when someone reached out and touched uh, a part of the Ark of the Covenant to rescue it from falling to the ground, he died instantly. And if we are going to be in the presence of God, we need to be forgiven. We need to be cleaned up. We need to be washed from our sins. We need a sacrifice or else we will die ourselves. And the scripture points us to this sacrifice. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the true temple of God. And we read in Colossians chapter 2 that in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives, dwells in bodily form. In the incarnation, God came down and lived among us to show us the way of holiness, to show us the way of peace and love and righteousness. But more than that, he came to, to pave the way in his, to his presence. He gave his life, not simply as an example, but as a sacrifice for sin, as a payment For sin. And when He died on the cross, the veil of the temple, which separated people from the presence of God, was ripped from top to bottom. He opened the way into the very presence of God. Jesus is our mediator. He opened the way into the presence of God by His own blood. And now all who come to God in faith, through faith in Christ, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Don't you know, Paul says, that the Spirit lives in you? And this, of course, is the fulfillment of God's promise to His people from Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 29. He says, I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. From all your uncleanness. It is because of Christ and His work that the Holy Spirit makes His home with us, with His people. Paul reminds the Corinthians of these things. You are the sacred temple of God, not because of your own righteousness or holiness, but because of the holiness of the one who died for you. Because He cleansed you, the Spirit of God Himself dwells in you, not because God saw that your heart was pure and clean, but in order to make you pure and clean. He has given you a new heart and dwells within you in order that you would now walk in His ways. And Paul says, you together are a building, a temple, the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. This is glorious. So have you come to faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, trusting in Jesus to save you? Well, Friends, if anyone is in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you individually, and you have been forgiven and washed clean. And this means, this is glorious, this means God is not repulsed by you anymore. He is with you. He is in you. And he sees you and you are precious in his sight, as precious as his own dear son whom he gave for you. And that's true not only of you, but everyone in this room who has called on the name of Jesus Christ. And doesn't this view, doesn't this change how we view one another? Now we can no longer look around the room at brothers and sisters in Christ and see them as simply ordinary. They are precious children of God with whom He is well pleased. And this changes how we view the church and our participation in it. So consider, how how are you guilty perhaps of minimizing or thinking little of the church? Meaning, in particular, this local expression of God's church. Or consider your own commitment here, your own commitment to your church. You know, in fact, consider your own commitment to this holy temple of God in light of your other commitments. In light of commitment to your work, perhaps. In light of commitment to your job. In light of commitment to... uh, thinking personally, to your children's sports activities or other activities. How committed are you to things in other areas of your life? And compare that. How committed are you to the holy temple of God, His church? How committed are you to the health and well-being of the church? Let me say I'm thankful Often for what I see. I'm thankful often for the commitment that I do see in our church. It does seem that generally we are not working to tear down our church. We are working actively to build up. I see your sacrifice. I see the ways in which you take initiative in one another's lives. And it gives me great joy as your pastor to see that. How committed are you to your regular attendance, to your giving? This is the holy temple of God. Let us see it in a spiritual sense. So contrary to those who view the church with contempt, contrary to those who view it as unessential or unimportant to their Christian life, many see it in that way. We must have a biblical view of it, a higher view of it, a spiritual view of it. We will commit ourselves to gathering together. We will seek to promote and protect its unity and purity. We will honor one another and speak highly of the church, for it is the temple of the living God. With all of its warts and imperfections and faults, with all of our weaknesses, we are the temple of the living God. And this, Paul says, is why sin against the church is so reprehensible. Since the church is the sacred temple of God, sins against the church are especially worthy of judgment. So look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Note the seriousness of sin against God's church, particularly sins which, which destroy the unity and purity of his church. Remember the context of our passage. The Corinthians are attaching themselves to certain leaders who think they are the greatest, the smartest, the most eloquent. And it's dividing the church. It's destroying the unity of the church. Paul says, what you're doing if you're destroying the church, it's unity. You are destroying the holy temple of God. One night, two weeks ago, in a small community, a couple of small communities in North Durham, there were two churches that were vandalized. So Little River Presbyterian Church and New Bethel United Methodist Church were broken into, and it seems like nothing was stolen, but windows were shattered and doors were broken, and the damage is estimated to be more than $20,000. And you have to wonder who would do such a thing, not only to any building, but to buildings in which people gather together for the worship of God. Meeting places for those who seek to worship the Lord and really to serve their their neighbors and their communities. Well, I think none of us would ever consider doing such a thing, would we? You wouldn't make a plan and destroy the property of any building, especially a church building. But how careful are we not to cause any damage to the actual church of God? How careful are we to hold our tongues from gossip? Or talk that would tear down the church. And yet, how much more important is the integrity of this spiritual building, the church, than mere physical buildings? We don't have to wonder what Paul would think about uh, the Christian celebrity culture. We don't have to wonder what he would think about church splits and quarreling and and, and gossip in the church. If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy that person, or as Paul puts it, actually a little more poetically, if anyone god's temple destroys, destroy that person, God will It's unclear exactly what kind of judgment Paul means here. Does he mean that they will suffer some sort of consequence here in this uh, this earth? will they suffer it uh, Some consequence short of eternal damnation in hell? Will it be like one who escapes barely through the flames? Or is he talking about hell? Whatever it is, I don't want that. It is a terrible warning to be careful about how we treat the church. God will destroy that person. It sounds a lot like eternal punishment in hell. It sounds like one who is not regenerate, one who is actively destroying the work and unity of the church. It is a very serious thing to fall into the judgment of a holy God. Let this be a grave warning. Now, none of us are guilty that I know of here, but let this be a grave warning to any of us who might one day be caught up in the very... Tearing down the very thing we love in God's church. Let us be very careful that we do not damage this holy structure. This warning, though, has more implications for us than simply be careful not to destroy God's church. So let me mention two of those implications. I think first, we must be eager... Not only to not be actively destroying the church, we must be eager to protect the unity and purity of the church. So what does this mean in practical terms? It means, yes, we guard ourselves, but it also means we guard the church from outside damage or from one another. It means we hold one another accountable. So if we hear a brother or sister speaking things which tend to tear down the church, Or if we hear gossip, if we see someone doing something that would bring harm to the church, then in a spirit of love and concern, we correct that brother or sister. And if someone comes to us and points something out to us that we are doing to harm the church, we don't immediately react in defensiveness and anger, but we weigh and consider what they say. So in our church covenant, we who are members agreed to love God's people by, quote, being slow to take offense and quick to forgive and seek forgiveness, exercising Christian care and watchfulness over others, opening yourself up to the care and watchfulness of others. We must be eager to protect the unity and purity of the church. And this will take courage and humility. It will take courage because most of us don't like any sort of confrontation. To call someone out on their sin is a frightening thing for some of us. And it will take humility because we don't like to get called out on our sin. Some might think that this sort of relationship between brothers and sisters is judgment. And they say we should never judge anyone. But as we will see in just a couple of chapters, we ought to hold one another accountable in the church. What is condemned is judging someone else, your brother or sister, in self-righteousness, thinking that you are better than they are. Looking down on someone else because of their sin. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't point out sin to one another, especially in regards to protecting the purity and unity of the church. We must protect the unity and purity of the church. But the second implication here is, on a more positive side, we must positive, positively promote the purity and unity of the church so consider the 10 commandments many of them are stated negatively right which ones do you think about do not lie do not steal do not murder do not commit adultery so consider do not murder for instance the command is you shall not murder does that mean you're keeping the command if you simply avoid murdering any anyone do you think that is the full intention of the command Well, no, the the fuller understanding of the commandment is that you would not merely avoid murdering someone, but that you would fulfill the opposite and positive side of the command, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself, to do positive good to them. That's how you really fulfill the commandment. And so in the same way, when Paul says, do not damage the church, we ought to consider the positive command of that. Instead of simply avoiding doing damage to the church, we ought to positively promote its purity and its health and its unity. So we read in Luther's catechism about bearing false witness. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. What does it mean? Answer, we should fear and love God that we may not deceitfully belie, betray, slander, or defame our neighbor. That's the negative side. But defend him think and speak well of him and put the best construction on everything so applied to our text we should not destroy the temple of god but rather we should protect and defend its unity and purity doing and speaking those things which contribute to the health and flourishing to the strength and unity of the church so consider what positively can you do to eagerly promote the unity and purity of the church who can you encourage today this week and seek to build up in the faith who can you seek out to do some spiritual good perhaps you've noticed someone you haven't really connected to all that much they haven't seemed as connected to the church or they themselves are going through some personal trial what would it mean to take initiative in them to invest in their lives And I feel like I repeat myself in saying these things because I do. But this is what it means to live together as a church, to be intentional toward one another. This is what it means to be the people of God to one another. It's what it means to love God's people and to actively and positively promote the good of the church. And we can be encouraged in this because we know we cannot fail. Because God is building His church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And nothing can prevail against Him. Ultimately, God will not be stopped in His purposes. Those who destroy God's church will be destroyed. But those who seek to build it up with lasting materials will be rewarded as good servants of the master builder. A few nights ago, uh, I watched a fantasy movie with our kids called Spiderwick. It's about a man who discovered that there was a world all around us with all kinds of magical creatures everywhere, but most people couldn't see them. This magical world wasn't far, far away, but right under our noses with careful observation, with keen insight, with the right techniques, you could see fairies and sprites and ogres and goblins. And the kids in the movie discovered a stone that you could look through, a stone-looking piece. And if they looked through it, all of the magical world was opened up. They could see everything as it truly was, which came in handy. If you couldn't see them, then you were in trouble of being harmed and troubled of being hurt. Well, of course, brothers and sisters, we don't have some looking piece. We don't need one. We have the spirit of God, which gives us spiritual insight and vision. And so let us not look at the church merely naturally. Let us see it as it truly is. We have the spirit of the living God inside of us. He enables us to see the world and the church, not merely naturally, but as it truly is. We are more than simply a collection of people who come here each week and sing together and pray together and hear a speech. By God's indwelling Spirit, we are the spiritual temple of the living God. If we fail to see this, if we fail to see with spiritual eyes, we will be harmed. We will do damage to the church and we will not protect it. But if we see ourselves for what we truly are in Christ then we will continue to be built up in love and in unity until we reach the fullness of maturity in Christ. Let us see one another as we truly are in Christ. Let us pray together.